I mean, we're we're not a million miles apart in terms of what we do. Like I like mm-hmm. I'm a freelance basically uh, person as well. And in LA, there's a lot of that. There's loads of people, you know, doing yeah, what you're yeah, doing. But yeah. here in Belfast, it's great to see people yeah. doing it now. And I've noticed like there's people like Shane Todd now, and there's Joel M, and there's there's locals who are coming up world class in terms of podcasts, in terms of comedy, in terms of magic, in terms, like. People who are doing their own thing—it's wonderful to see. Absolutely, like, you know, it's, it's so uh, great, it's so good. It's incredible what you can do now. Yeah, cool, mate. This is just going to be <coughs> far-reaching, <coughs> all over the place, go with the flow sort of territory. But I'm Pete, good with that. Really, really appreciate you coming in. It's uh, it's been a few years. I've known off you and your work, and so I'm really looking forward to having a bit of a chat. Fantastic. I really would love to get a bit more about you as a person. So I'm always interested in homecoming stories. Oh yeah, um, you're kind of right bang in the middle of that transition, which is cool. But where did you where did you start off? Where were you born and bred? Uh, East Belfast. Yeah. So I was a uh, East Belfast boy. Was there for many many years. And then moved to South Belfast for a bit, and I was always a homebody. Was never going to go far afield. Uh, and eventually, and we may get into why or whatever, but eventually, I found myself in America, which was quite unusual in my early thirties. And have just recently returned uh, to Belfast. Literally two weeks ago, <laughs> I arrived back for at least a year. Yeah, crazy. How long were you away for? You know, it's probably about fifteen years. I always came home for a few months of the year. Love coming home, and uh, so I always made sure that maybe Christmas, I do a little festival here, come home for that. Uh, so I always kept kept a kind of a grip of this place. But I've been living in America for yeah about fifteen. Uh, about four or five of those on the East Coast and then the rest on the West Coast. Yeah. Uh, an area you and I are extremely different in is that you managed to keep your accent and oh, I yeah. completely lose mine. I, right? I lived in the States for like only three years and I was coming back and people were like sla- like absolutely raking me. Like. Uh, see, that means you're probably a good singer. I've heard if you're a good singer, you pick up accents. I'm a terrible singer, so I have 15 <laughs> years and I still sound like I'm from <laughs> Belfast. You know? I had a guy in yesterday and uh, we were talking about accents and he was saying his mum used to call it a musical ear, so maybe there's something to uh, that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I have no musical ear like I just I think I'm tone deaf so yeah <laughs> don't pick it up at all so uh, <clears throat> a question or a place I often love to start is like way way back in the beginning so if you cast your mind back what are some of the first early things that you can remember you know the truth is I don't remember very much I've got like I'm one of those guys who, you know, I don't think I'm that interested in myself. <laughs> so I never really think much about, I'm such an ideas person because, you know, I, I eventually find my way into philosophy as an adult, but um, I find myself and find myself so interested in ideas that um, I don't have that many memories. And then, of course, when you go back far enough, you don't know whether the memories are real <laughs> or whether they were, you know, put there. So I've got a memory of being on holiday in Tenerife with my family, but I'm nearly sure that was just told to me. And, you know, my mind reconstructed it. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, I mean, even memories from two weeks ago can be deceiving, but memories from youth, oh my goodness, yeah. Interesting. So, you know, <clears throat> you say you're an ideas guy, you're always more interested in ideas. Like, what other areas of your life has that kind of uh, rubbed against? Like, for example, I w- can relate to that. And I know for me, like, you know, my wife's always going on at me, like, you just always wear the same thing. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah, or it's like, yeah, I'm yeah. not, there's other areas of my life that kind of really uh, get zero attention because I am so interested in maybe, as you put it, ideas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, I remember when I was doing my PhD many years ago, um, I would 
constantly lock myself out of the house because I would constantly <laughs> forget my keys. I'd forget to eat. I'd forget to everything else became completely irrelevant. And it was that typical uh, bumbling kind of thinker. But there's something about when you're lost in an idea, even something simple like mathematics, like two plus two equals four, you're lost in something eternal. Two plus two equals four never gets old. It didn't come into existence. It doesn't go out of existence. It's eternally young. And when you lose yourself in an idea like that, you briefly lose your finitude. You, you briefly become one with the eternal. So one of the things I love about philosophy is when you're sitting thinking about an idea, thinking through something, you can forget for a little moment that you're dying, <laughs> that you're a physical body, that you're, sure. you're you're inhabiting space. For a brief moment, it feels like you are moving in the realm of the idea, the concept, the eternal. Mm -hmm. And that sounds very romanticized, but it's actually kind of, it's kind of true. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, Do you differentiate that from, to go ahead, take a drink. Do you yeah. differentiate that <clears throat> from escapism? Is that this, you know, because I could, I could say very similar things about like, you know, plugging into a game or plugging into like a, uh, yeah. a drug of choice or whatever. But do you differentiate it or do you think it's the same mechanism? That's a good question. You know, one person's escapism uh, is another person's kind of entry into life. So, mm. uh, you know, somebody might use, I think it's a great question because somebody might use ideas and philosophy to escape difficult things to to become abstract and to avoid their emotional life absolutely and then there's healthy ways of doing it and so I, for for me anything and i'm interested in psychoanalysis as you, you probably know um for me anything can be pathological uh fitness can be pathological 100%. or it can be healthy yeah yeah you know like if there's a difference between being fit and healthy and someone who has to you know to, like I, I sometimes look at people in la where you know one day they're an alcoholic and they get rid of the alcoholism and then they take up CrossFit. It's even worse. You know, one day you're <laughs> drinking whiskey, the next day you're flipping tires, you know. <laughs> it's just another way to avoid something <laughs> sometimes, yeah. sometimes. Yeah. So we, we can, and, oh, and in L.A., you'll, love, you'll know this, man, but the L.A. is incredible for spiritualizing pathologies. So like uh, eating disorders become uh, kind of health things. Mm -hmm. So um, and taking drugs become spiritual enlightenment. And now sometimes it can be. You can take drugs and have a very, you know, positive and do it very, very well. But sometimes these things and sometimes you can have a good diet that's not a uh, an eating disorder. But yeah. you do you can look at how we can kind of turn something that is unhealthy into its very opposite. Mm -hmm. Into its very, like, oh, this is a healthy lifestyle. And you go, like, actually. Like, there's a guy, have you ever seen the guy, the Liver King? Oh, yes, man. Oh. He is a uh, a character of a character. character. I know. Yeah. Well, did you hear it recently? It just came out a couple of days ago that he's pumping himself through full of steroids. Did you hear about uh, this? I mean, I'm not surprised. Not surprised. I mean, yeah. look at him. You can't <laughs> look at him. There's he's a Greek god. <laughs> I know. There is no way you can look like that, right? And whenever you look at him, if I naively, as somebody who doesn't know much about health, I might go, oh, he's the pinnacle of health. Mm. But I know enough mm. to go, actually, that's... That, that's not healthy. Like yeah. that's, that there's something not healthy going on there. Mm. Um, so weirdly, the two opposites collide. Yeah. And it's really interesting. Like there's there's other people who I know recently have their steroid use has kind of been like found out. Oh, yeah. And they were big proponents <clears throat> of, say, something like a ketogenic diet. And they built a whole brand and a business around the oh, ketogenic yeah. diet. And it's that deception where it's like yeah. without explicitly saying it, you're doing videos with your shirt off with the massive Hercules sort of like stature. 
And visually, because, you know, the medium is very, very important. I would love to talk to you. I just read a book that if you haven't read about, you would love. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Oh, yeah, that's a... uh, Neil Postman, Neil Postman. Like, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a classic work. Yeah, I read like, a lot. Yeah, I'm really, real newbie yeah. into this. Like, oh, I, yeah. I just found out about it, and he talks <clears> a lot about how, you know, whenever something is visual, that in of itself is it defines the way something is communicated. And so, Liver King and this ketogenic guy, they never explicitly said if you eat only raw meat or if you follow the ketogenic diet, you will look like me. But visually, that's what's being communicated to you. And I think Absolutely. that's interesting. And that's that's actually in the Liver King, that's one of the issues is I actually think he was also explicitly saying that he pretty much, he was very into, what do you call a diet where you eat the kind of liver and the heart? Is that is there a name for that? I don't know. I know carnivore is like snout the tail, all of the animal. But that's I, what he I, is. I think there's something, there's even something beyond that. Beyond it's like the, the raw meat diet or something. Or something like yeah. that. So he was a very big advocate of that. So he was, as you say, either visually communicating that, but also I think verbally saying, <laughs> Yikes. you know, you do, you you eat liver and, you know, he's the liver king and you're going to look <laughs> like me. I'm like, I mean, there's no way I'm ever going to look like him, <laughs> whether whatever I eat, you know. Um, yeah. It's interesting how, you know, I called him a character because he doesn't even seem real. Yeah, yeah. I came across him randomly and he did seem like a caricature. Yeah. 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 And it, in the end, it turns out that he's not real. Ah. You, you know, because he's... Yes. he's well, yeah, well, yes, because yeah. there's a whole, yeah. But it's yeah. interesting that, you know, even to a trained eye and mind like yourself, mm-hmm. like unless you really are intentional, you'll just take it at face value. Yes, yeah. And so... I, I, how vulnerable are we as a people then, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the, the crazy thing is, like, people, Freud says uh, something beautiful, which is, like, people are always telling you the truth, uh, not with their mouths, but with the tapping of their finger or mm. with the way they move their shoulders. You know, people are telling the truth. And whenever you look at somebody, like, reaction formation is very interesting, where often someone's telling you the truth by giving you the opposite. So someone who looks like they're very arrogant and they they think they're amazing, they think they're incredible, they're telling you that they hate themselves. Mm. Uh, A couple that are always telling you that they're happy on Instagram, either (laughs) constantly telling you they're happy or telling you that they're not happy. Because if you were happy, you wouldn't really be constantly having to tell people you're happy. Because often happiness is quite, it's not a private affair, but often if you're with somebody and you're happy, the last thing you're thinking about is how can we put up 30 pictures of it? But if you're putting up 30 pictures of it, you're not lying to the the people on Instagram, you're lying to yourself. Um, And when you develop that app, you start to kind of see it everywhere and you say, oh, right. Um, and I often say reaction formation is one of those things where with the, with the liver king, that size of person, that, that is, is almost telling you it's opposite. It's just telling you mm-hmm. something else, you know. Um, and yeah, so keeping an eye out for that is always interesting. It's really, <laughs> really interesting. Yeah. Wow. Um, you mentioned happiness. Oh, yeah. And that's really like I have two <laughs> things written down here. One of them is freelance philosopher because I think yeah. that's a lovely phrase. <laughs> and I want, we will get into that. And the second thing is tyranny of happiness. Oh, yes, yes. What is the tyranny of happiness? Uh, well, see, that's what partly why I moved to Los Angeles is because um, I, I would argue that LA is one of the most religious places in the world. Um, if you define religion as the promise of wholeness and completeness, of a kind of transcendence, um, 
Then when you go to L.A., every corner there's somebody saying you can be whole and complete through <laughs> psychedelic enlightenment, commodity satisfaction, sexual liberation. There's promises everywhere, do yeah, yoga yeah, yeah. or whatever. And um, <clears throat> there's a real tyranny of, of certainty and satisfaction. There's a desire to be whole and complete. And the funny thing is someone like the philosopher Slavoj Žižek makes a really interesting argument that today's superego is a superegoic enjoyment. And what that means is often we feel guilty, not because we didn't visit our mum. We feel guilty because we're not having enough sex. We're not hanging out enough. We're not going out enough. We're not having enough fun. We're looking at everybody else on social media and they're having all of this seemingly enjoyment, mm. what they're called uncastrated, right? That means they're, they've got the thing and we don't. And so we start feeling guilty and bad for, for not having enough pleasure in our existence. So a lot of my work is about saying that we need to be freed from the tyranny of happiness. Mm -hmm. We need to be freed from this frenetic pursuit of more and better and kind of realize that, realize that this thing's a fiction, just like the liver king's a good example. Whenever you see all these, <clears throat> sorry, all these images of people online who are happy, most of the time they're not, mm. or they're happy for a little moment. Like I used to live uh, in this apartment block where I would see on an almost weekly basis some people shooting Instagram live videos. <laughs> they would come out, they would set up, they'd open a bottle of champagne or whatever that would be fake. They'd get out the glasses, they'd pretend to have fun, they'd do all of that, they'd do their few minutes, and then as soon as the camera was off, just look depressed and, and walk off. You know, it was pure fiction. But what that's doing is we're looking around and everyone looks like they're having fun except for us. Yeah. Everyone looks like they're having a great time and it makes us more anxious more depressed and more unhappy. So freedom from the tyranny of happiness, which is a lot of what my work is about, is allowing people to be free from that crazy pursuit. Mm. It is really interesting. You, when you were talking about the couples that put up all the photos on Instagram, mm. uh, I remember like a, something my granny she said to me was happiness is an inside job, mm. uh, which I don't think was hers. I'm pretty sure she plagiarized that off somebody big. But posting loads of photos like that looking for affirmation and looking for happiness is the opposite of an inside job. It's like yeah. you're it's you're trying to make it an outside job. It's like, oh, if I get enough eyeballs on this or if I can convince the people around me that I'm happy, then maybe I will actually experience it myself. Yes. Now, and this is this gets us into the heart of something really interesting about desire, human desire, because there's a sense in which I would argue that we all happiness uh, is interconnected in some way with other people. So uh, they call this the incest taboo in anthropology, where the incest taboo is basically where in any culture you will find that there is a taboo, obviously, I guess, incest of some kind, whatever that is. But ultimately, what it means at its most basic is you can't stay with your mother forever, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you become Irish, right? <laughs> you, have to, you have to break out of the of family unit. And the reason why you find it everywhere is if you could stay at your mother's breast forever, that's kind of like a private happiness. You'd just be content, uh -huh. right? But you have to kind of be pushed out, mm -hmm. be pushed out into the world and find your happiness somewhere else. So the philosopher Shizek tells this great story about this guy. And this guy is... Uh, washed up on a desert island and he's on the desert island and only one other person has been washed up with him and it is um, Cameron Diaz. He said, like, oh my goodness, Cameron Diaz is the only other person on this whole island. So he tries to flirt with her 
tries to get her to sleep with him, but she's none of it, right? This guy, you know, let's call him Seamus from Ireland. This guy's Seamus, no interest. So eventually, after about a year, Cameron Diaz realizes, listen, this is the only guy on the island, right? Maybe we should get together. So they have a romantic meal. They end up sleeping together. It's wonderful. Seamus is so happy. The next day, he wakes up, big smile on his face, and he says to Cameron Diaz, listen, just do one thing for me. He says, put on my hat. And could you like draw a little moustache on, on your face and put on these boots, right? And then meet me down at the beach. And she's like, what, is this some weird sex game or something? He's like, no, no, please, just do it for me. Just do it for me. So she does and she goes down to the beach. She sees Seamus. Seamus runs up to her, puts his arms around her and says, oh, it's so great to see you. He says, you'll never guess who I just slept with, right? <laughs> no, it's not enough to just sleep with Cameron Diaz. You Very have to tell good. someone. You know? yeah. um, and in fact, the funny thing is about sex is, is, is most, a lot of guys, what's more important is telling their friends that they slept with somebody, not the sex itself, mm. it's the telling. So there's something about desire that, that always involves other people mm-hmm. um, to some extent. But the unhealthy version of that is when, of course, we only get a substitute pleasure from the pleasure of people thinking we're having pleasure. <laughs> and that's where it gets kind of messed up. But there's a certain sense in which all of our desire is interconnected with others. I, I could say one more thing about that, if that's yep, okay. No, yeah. So uh, a guy, René Girard, who's a very, very good th- thinker of desire, he talks about when you desire... The first type of desire sounds kind of weird. The most precious material in the world, basically. The most precious thing in the world is not gold, it's not health. It's the desire of the one you desire. What we desire is the desire of those we desire, those we love. The first person is the desire of your parent. You want the desire of their of theirs. But also desire gets really complicated because you also start to desire what the other person desires. So an infant starts to look at what the parents like. And they start to like those things. And this is called joint attention, where an infant at a certain age will look at where the parent is looking and will start to desire what their gaze lands mm. on. Right? So, so you start by desiring the other's desire. Then you also start to desire what they desire. Then you also start to desire to be like them or to be them. And so desire is inherently involves things like jealousies and and competition and admiration and because if if you basically you know say you're going out with somebody and I'm a friend of yours I might start to desire your partner because you desire them I desire them because of your desire yeah, your yeah, yeah, desire yeah, yeah. is what makes me desire them yeah. and then we're in conflict because now we desire the same person yeah. and so we have to fight and the only way society gets out of this is by creating a scapegoat so eventually, in, so that we don't kill each other, we have to find someone to blame. So we look for somebody and we that's called the scapegoat. We blame them for the problems of the conflict in our society. Yeah. And then that fixes things temporarily. But it never works for the long term, you know. Interesting. There was a guy in my youth group. He was probably, I'm going to say, about 14. And he showed me a meme uh, from TikTok that he really liked. And it was... Uh, just like this kind of like little nerdy, scrawny guy. And, and the, the video says something just like, you know, me introducing my new girlfriend to the boys. And then there's like a wee transition that says, 
the boys all of a sudden and then it was like the rock and it was like uh arnold schwarzenegger and like all these big guys all of a sudden these like puny little guys turn into like these really impressive (laughs) yeah 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 great to see you like nice to meet you i'm i'm his best friend he's like what the heck this never happened before do you know what i mean very good and it is and and that i guess that's the the philosophical underpinning of that is is because this woman has now become desirable because uh you know, the guy that introduces them actually desires her. Absolutely. So you see mm. this in, in with famous people sometimes is there's a few famous people who are just famous because they're famous. And what happens then is it's literally you start to take an interest in them because other people have taken an interest yeah. in them. And for a few, and sometimes, you know, the it girl is a good example of that because technically an it girl is someone who is famous for being the it, the thing, what's the dusting, the they're not famous this for something. They're famous for for simply being the it girl. Um, so that's kind of and it's a very radical. Um, type. I mean, it's it's actually the purest form of desire. Right? The purest form of desire is you desire the person simply because everyone else's desire is focused on them. Mm. But we don't re- but we don't experience it like that. So we always experience our desire as ours. So when if you start going out with somebody. You may not have had an interest in French movies or you may not have had an interest in (laughs) in walking in the park or whatever, but then you take on their interests and then eventually you start thinking they're your own. So whenever you start to have to separate your music collections, you're like, that's my, I I like them. You're going, no, I was the one who introduced you. And you're going, no, that's my desire. I like it. Interesting. The other people kind of give us our desires, but we experience them as our own. Yeah. And the funny thing is when you fall in love, Often you feel like someone has seen a part of you that's not been seen before. But in some ways, the closer truth is that they you're born again. You're becoming someone new. Their desire is not simply helping you find a desire that's deep down within you that you always had, but they're birthing in you a desire that was actually never there. And so that's why it sometimes feels like you're born again, like you're you're becoming something new because that person is drawing out and not even drawing out, they're helping to put in, plant into you new forms of life, new forms of being. So interesting. Yeah. That's why to be human, by the way, is to always be becoming. A dog is a dog, a cat is a cat, a rock is a rock. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. a human is a becoming. That's why we talk about inhuman. There's no in-dog. Well, that's a very in-dog dog you know mm. no it's inhuman because there's a certain sense in which to be human as Jean-Paul Sartre talks about this to be human is to be always creating and recreating oneself mm-hmm. so talk to me about um, I really I really want to talk about Irish mummies <laughs> yeah you really you really like put it in my head so <laughs> you know you've lived overseas I've lived overseas you don't even have to live overseas to know that like you know Irish boys, especially, and their mummies, oh, yeah. has a bit is a bit of a thing. Yeah. Well, that's why you know that's why they say Jesus was Irish. You know that, like he lived with his mum till he was thirty, and she thought he was God. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's brutal. So, what do you think is going on there? You know, because there is a real. You talked about um, you know desire and its purest form or happiness spirit form. It's like you know staying really really close to the mum and never leaving that place and it's interesting even if you look at like you know like a Hebrew narrative like Adam and Eve had to leave the garden so there is something deep in us as humans that it's kind of good for us to leave it's good for us to leave and cleave I think as it says you know you go out from the place from where you were into somewhere new into somewhere dangerous into somewhere exciting you've got the hero's journey which I'm a big fan of as well but specifically like what do you think is going on with 
Irish sons and their mums? <laughs> That's an interesting question. So this is not what I think is going on, but I'll say this because is that at an extreme um a lack of separation from the mother in psychoanalysis is actually called psychosis, right? So I don't think the Irish have suffered from psychosis, but technically, um, if the separation with the mother doesn't kind of happen, like you've got to... Uh, so in um, in psychoanalytic theory, very briefly, people will know, maybe know this, but uh, they'll have heard of the Oedipus complex. And the Oedipus complex is Oedipus loves his mum. Well... He wants to sleep with his mum. He doesn't know it's his mum, but he wants to sleep with his mum. His father is in the way. He kills his father. He sleeps with his mother. He thinks it's going to be wonderful. It's a disaster, right? So that's the Oedipus complexes, which, and one way of describing what that means is if you think of Oedipus as us, you think of the mother as the object that you think will make you whole and complete, fame, money, sex, whatever it is. And the father is whatever gets in the way of you yeah. getting to go returning to the womb, getting the thing that will make you complete. Then this story is a story of you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Mm-hmm. It's like if you don't get what you want, you feel sad. But actually, if you do get what you want, it's an absolute disaster, right? Yeah. So Freud would say, you know, fulfill your dreams so that you can see the abject horror of your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, fulfill your dreams so you realize that your dreams do not fulfill you. And I remember, like, you know, one of those wee, I must have been 16 year old, year old at the time, and, you know, on Instagram, and it's like a Socrates quote. I think it was around the time I first read The Great Gatsby, and the Socrates quote was like, two great tragedies in life, to not get your heart's desire, and the second is to get it. That's it, although that was Oscar Wilde. Oh, uh, that was not Socrates? Th- uh, that was not Socrates. Oh, no, that's that a was big misrepresentation. Well, I mean, I'm trying to think if, because Oscar Wilde definitely said that. There's only two tragedies in life. One is not Incredible. getting what you want, the other is getting You know what? what? It's probably one of those like uh, Instagram things where like oh, yeah. Abraham Lincoln gets attributed to every quote ever. That's or right. Or Mark Twain. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. Saying, yeah. <laughs> the internet is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's because I know that quote because I, uh, I love that quote. I mean, Oscar Wilde was brilliant at this, and it's it's so beautifully true. And we kind of understand it to be true, which is the interesting thing. We we don't live as if it's true. Like mm. we often find ourselves wanting things in some obsessive way, as if like being with that person, having that pro- possession, having that job is somehow going to work. But somewhere deep down, we realize that hold on a second, there's there's a there's a tragedy there. Like and we live in a society where. The losers lose doubly, but even the winners lose. It's a oh, crazy yeah. thing, yeah. So I, I, when I lived in America on the East Coast, I was in an area, I lived in an area with some of the richest people in the world. I had a patron, somebody who wanted to support my work, and they lent me a place to live in this very wealthy place. Now, there were some people who were happy and content. The ones who were were the ones who were working very hard to make changes in society. But... Also, there was such depression and melancholy in that space as well. And these are the winners. These are the people who got it, who got everything. And you're going like, so at the very least, you go, well, did it work for them? You're like, no, they have nicer showers. They have a nicer car. That's what I learned. You can have a house that's always at at a really nice temperature. Like money can get you those things. (laughs) But but if you don't have a sense of meaning... It's disastrous. Yeah. And, and I, I had a friend who, who was an actor, became very successful, and he said that the day that he was doing his first big uh, movie, he said he just broke down. He said it was the kind of weirdly, he said this was this, this most depressing moment. And it was because in a way he'd always built up that when he got to that place, things would be different. And mm-hmm. when he got there, 
he saw behind the curtain and it was like, oh, there's nothing there. I love what you said about, and I've never heard it before, which is how little reading I've done in the psychoanalysis, but the idea that we're all trying to go back to the womb. Uh, We're trying to go back to that place of comfort. And so you spend your life searching for that thing. Yes. And I think that probably manifests itself in so many different ways. You know, you could go down an addiction road, which is really interesting. You could go down a status road, which would also be really interesting. But yeah, it is like you're you're searching for that which cannot really be found again. Yeah. And, is that and, fair yeah. to say? Yeah, ex- exactly. They call it the lost object. And and the um in the Jewish tradition, you mentioned Adam and Eve. It starts off with an eatable story. Mm. You got Adam and Eve. You've got an object that they, uh, and you've got a prohibition: do not eat of the fruit. And you have this voice, this serpentine voice, which in psychoanalysis is the superegoic voice that says, if you get that fruit, you will be like God, which means you will lack the lack, you will be whole and complete. Mm. And they break through the prohibition, they get the object, and it's not a blessing, it's a curse. Yeah. So the very the very structure of Judaism begins with an eatable story. Um, and I would argue that that kind of the thing that we have to not just, not intellectually understand, that's one thing and that's fun, but existentially understand is not only are we being led by the news when we're being led to try and get the thing that will make us whole and complete, not only does that increase our unhappiness, our anxieties, our jealousies, our, it, not only does it break down civilization because you're always looking at other people and, and they have the thing, it's actually what makes life enjoyable is precisely not getting what you want. Like, actually, that's not depressing. That's the, where the real meat is, yeah, 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 <laughs> is yeah, in, yeah. The, in the struggle itself. Yeah. Yeah? Like, any time someone's successful, I know, the thing that puts a smile on their face is when they're sitting down telling the story of the struggle th- to get there. Really interesting. Yeah. I, this isn't exactly connected, but what just came in my head was... There is nothing more satisfying after, you know, if you have a garden or you're doing something in your house and you put in the real sweat. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's it's the feeling of looking over the work that you've done. Yes. That is really satisfying rather than like anything that the work itself actually gives you. 100%. And one of the distinctions that, that is used in analysis is often between pleasure and enjoyment. And so pleasure is often the name given to what a kind of like happiness you get from, say, a present at Christmas. Right? You get a present, you open it up, and you get a pleasure. But enjoyment is the name for the happiness you get from not having the present, from waiting for it, from the expectancy. Mm. Now, and it looks like suffering, so they often call it jouissance. Jouissance, it's like a suffering enjoyment. So the, the kid is like, I can't wait to Christmas. I won't open the presents, and they're touching it, and they're doing this. And they're always suffering, but they're also, you can see the enjoyment. <laughs> and that is so much more fun. So one example, I think one of the few places that this happens in contemporary society is in an area that I hate. So I'm going to use an analogy from something I don't understand. And it's uh, sport or football is a good example. And we're at the World Cup at the moment. Is like football never made sense to me because no one ever wins, right? No one ever wins the football. It just goes on forever, right? <laughs> they have matches, they have matches and matches. And uh, Mitchell and Webb do a great sketch on that where basically it'll never end. No one ever wins the football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes on. And I realized that that's actually what makes it so enjoyable is you get pleasure when your team wins. But imagine if your team won all the time. Like, yeah. the, And I remember it happened when I was a teenager. I think Manchester United for a while were winning everything. And for the people who supported Manchester United, it actually took away from the enjoyment. There's no arc. There's no story. No story. There's no 
redemption. There's no baddie. There's no hero. There's no there's sad no story. Yeah, there's no sad. Yeah, and yeah. all of that regard. And you have to have the pleasure. So you have to have the odd win. But but the real the real meat is in the struggle with your team, the kind of mm. kind of the movement and the fact that it never ends. You know, for me, I would be like, yeah. okay, let's let's have a a, su- a a world World Cup decide who wins the football, and then we'll invent <laughs> a new game. <laughs> but that's not how it works, you know. But but whereas within our economic system, we're constantly fantasizing kind of getting to retirement, say, and sacrifice and sacrifice and just sitting by the beach and not having to work, not having to enjoy. Mm-hmm. And what we don't realize is that's a living death. Yeah. Now, the problem is we, the reason why we fantasize that is because we're not enjoying our work. And I'd love to talk with you about this because we're both, and just before we started, you were saying about what you're doing and you've been able to make your passion your work and your life. But so few people sadly are able to do that or have the uh, opportunities to do that and so a lot of people are in jobs even if they're getting well paid they're alienated and like they don't they don't enjoy it they're spending 40 hours a week or more doing something that's not really them and so of course they fantasize this so i'll give you maybe some interesting raw material to work with i went through something about two years ago where i think most young entrepreneurs of a certain generation and of a certain uh, podcast listening book reading style fall into this real like digital nomad like fire community you know financially independent retire early oh yes it's it's, it's all about like making as much money as you possibly can in as little amount of time so that you can experience retirement in you know in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s it's four hour work week it's very tim ferris who i'm greatly indebted to a lot of his work has shaped me in a profound way but i i, I found myself like maybe two years ago where i had really cut my work hours down like significantly mm. like i was maybe working 20 to 25 hours a week mm. and i found that i was experiencing a little bit of what you described as a, a, yeah. a living death, yeah. Because I was like, "Is this it?" And initially, like, and it was spent initially um, with good things. You know, I just had had our first child. Well, I didn't have it; my wife had it. Yeah. And so but it's was, worse for the guy, isn't yeah. it? Uh, you're the pregnancy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was, you know, so I was able to fill that time with really useful stuff. Yeah. But actually, my life got really easy, mm-hmm. and. That was a type of suffering and of itself, yeah. and so if you're not if you're not experiencing hardship, mm-hmm. now you know life always has a way of bringing you hardship, yes. and there certainly has been lots of hardship along the way. But I just found that like I was able to taste maybe for a period of I don't know was it three months or was it six months what I think people only experience when they're sixty, mm-hmm. and I realized yeah. that actually work is not something to be avoided. Yeah. Work is something that I love. Yes. I love to work and I love to work because I'm fortunate yes. to do something that I love, which is what yes. you said. It's absolutely, and it's about, and this is the real tragedy. And this, you know, can, you know, I'm interested in maybe yourself, like in political stuff as well. But one of the tragedies is so many people sacrifice and work hard, but they don't see the benefit of that sacrifice. They don't. So it's, it's a really alienating sacrifice, a really alienating hard work. But if you can work hard, for something that enlivens you, that that enlivens your creativity, that allows you to to flourish, then 
then yes, that's that's the dream. Mm. That is the and and what I would love to see, obviously, is more and more people able to do that. It's very very hard, but if you're like, are at the moment the fantasy of our contemporary world is as we talked about the sacrifice of sacrifice, the retire early, the sit by the beach, whatever. But if sacrifice is intimately connected with meaning, and I would argue it is, um, then once you get rid of sacrifice. And I've seen this in, again, where I lived in L.A., where I've seen a lot of people who did get everything they wanted and how devastating it was. Um, When you get rid of the sacrifice, you get rid of the meaning. And we have lots of rituals in society because obviously within economics, it's all about exchange. Mm -hmm. Of course, I go into a shop, I purchase something. And the point of purchasing is I don't have any indebtedness to the people like if I go to a a restaurant I don't feel indebted to the chef because you know I've paid the money it's an exchange but if the world was purely exchange um, then it it would collapse because what you require is gift a gift is the opposite of an exchange a gift is a non-reciprocal offering Uh, it's an offering without return so even in Ireland and I got this in America it's funny like in Ireland we always buy rounds you go in there, yeah, yeah, you yeah, buy a round yeah. of drinks for you. You don't do that in America. And the re- there's a reason for it. It makes total sense, which is in America, and maybe increasingly here as well, but in America, you hand in your credit card at the beginning of the night. So you can't really buy a round because you go up to, you, you'd use cash and everyone's got their credit card. So, but I never got it right. So I was always buying a round and it always made everyone feel very anxious <laughs> and awkward. It's like, what is he doing? I'm like, You've put me in debt. What yes, a <laughs> So it really didn't work. But, I've got like, but here in Ireland, it's wonderful because it is a gift. I, you don't all take tarry of how many rounds has mm-hmm. been bought, but it's a gift economy. It's like, the, you know, the next week someone's going to buy you a drink and two weeks later. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's this gift economy or when you bring a bottle of wine, to to your friends because they're they're cooking a meal. It's a gift, and you're not you're not tallying up the cost. But it's a gift economy, and a gift is a sacrifice. That's what a gift is. It's yeah. a non reciprocal. So, without gift, um, there is no meaning. Without sacrifice, there is no meaning. But also, if people have to sacrifice in a way in which they're utterly alienated, then that's dehumanizing. Obviously, I didn't prep you for this, and obviously, it's a very strange place to go. But I'm thinking about Cain and Abel. Oh, so uh, story of Cain and Abel. The way I remember it is, uh, there's two brothers. They're the sons of Adam and Eve, and they're both asked to, or they both get to make a sacrifice to God. And one of them brings vegetables, and the other one brings a lamb. And one person's sacrifice is honoured. And the other person's sacrifice is not honoured. Uh-huh. And Cain is the one whose sacrifice wasn't honoured. And what does he do? He's so filled with rage that he kills his own brother. Ah, uh, yes. And yeah, if, yeah. when you were talking there, that's what I was thinking uh, yeah. about. I was like, the way our system is set up, it's a Cain-producing machine. That's very good. And there's like, are we surprised that people are so angry? Are we surprised people are driven to violence? Are we surprised people are enraged at the system yeah. because this big anonymous thing says, sorry, your sacrifice isn't good enough. Yes. And so actually now you're just left with nothing. Left nothing, yeah. And then on the other side, the people who are benefiting from that sacrifice, they get all these benefits. However, they, like, it, you know, broadly speaking, you could say depression is the sadness of not getting what you want and melancholy is the sadness of getting what you want. So even the people who are just taking the, the fruit of mm-hmm. the sacrifice 
they end up having lovely houses and lovely cars and living utterly <laughs> vacuous lives. Yeah, I did hear a guy say one time, it's like, look, I know that uh, money can't buy happiness, but I'd rather cry in my Ferrari. Like, you know, something along oh, those yeah, lines. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. And the funny thing is this, because I've had nothing and then I've had a lot or I lived in a place where there's a lot and yes. I was being very lucky in doing that and I've seen both sides and I've been depressed when I had no money and I've been depressed when I had money and I've been happy <laughs> when I had none and happy when I had and you go like when you have when you're when you're in a good place having enough to be able to pay your rent put you know heat your house uh-huh. travel like that is that is good um, but it doesn't uh, but if but it doesn't existentially improve your life mm-hmm. basically one iota you end up crying in the Ferrari and yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know that, um, this is widely told, the Joseph Heller um, Wall Street story. Do you know this one? I don't know. I'll run it th- you you, you oh, may recognize it when I tell it, but uh, who told me this? Someone told me it's like three years ago on the podcast. I think it was a guy called Willie Jack. Willie Jack owns like the Duke of York and the Heart Bar. Oh, and- yes. Is he, is he the guy who won the lottery? No. Did he win? lottery if he wins if he's won the lottery that's a great story because oh. i've never heard that before well no he would have told you there is a guy who he was a bus driver won the lottery and he works with him i think but i think he said he set up a whiskey distillery but it wasn't you should get him on the podcast yeah, i have should. to remember yeah, his name okay, let me make but, a note well but tell me about uh, this guy bus driving lottery winner that's the note there he's often actually in whenever because i've watched some of these youtube ones where they often tell you about the worst lottery winners the ones who lost it all oh, or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. and they talk about the best ones and he's always in the best ones whenever wow. they talk about the most successful like the ones who turned it around yeah, yeah, yeah. he's the person in Belfast because he didn't just sit in his laurels he didn't go oh, I'm just going to retire wow. he was like no I'm going to set up a distillery I'm going to do stuff for Belfast that's gonna, interesting so he, he kind of basically sacrificed he worked yeah and, yeah um, yeah yeah so he'll be if you know in the YouTube videos about who are the best lottery winners there's a guy from Belfast in there mate that's such a great <laughs> guest recommendation well definitely we'll, yeah. I'll, I'll poke into that but Willie told me a story about Joseph Heller who he was a playwright and he wrote that one book that I have read called Catch 22 and very funny book and Joseph Heller this is apocryphal isn't it but allegedly it happened Joseph Heller was at a big swanky cocktail party in Manhattan with a whole bunch of Wall Streeters and you know he's kind of a bit of a down and out Irish playwright and he's there because you know he's the artist or whatever and one of the big hedge fund managers comes up to him and just says to him I've made more money today trading on the on the floor than you have in your entire career. And Joseph Heller, you know, takes a swig of his whiskey or whatever, like puffs his cigar, whatever makes him look badass, and turns around to him and says, "That's very good, sir. But I have one thing that you you will never have." And the guy's like, "What's that?" And he says, "I have enough." Ah, uh, yeah. And yeah. I think that's very good. Very good. Because there's people I've met who have nothing who have enough, oh. and I've also met people who have a lot. Who also have enough, and it's it's not connected to f- finance or success. It's it's something else. See, yeah, and this is like this is an interesting thing about um, again the a Freudian notion called the drive, which is related. So there's instincts. Animals have instincts, but Freud theorized that humans have drive, and this this notion of drive is central to a certain stream of thought in 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 philosophy and psychoanalysis, and. Um, Drive is a weird form of selflessness. 
Right? So whenever we think of selflessness, we often think of like, you know, Mother Teresa or whatever. Um, but there's a zombie selflessness. A zombie is selfless in that a zombie will come at you even if you've got a rifle and mm-hmm. are shooting it, right? Um, the alien and aliens is selfless in that no matter what you fire at it, it just keeps coming even to the detriment of its own self. Yeah. And in analysis, they talk about basically this perverse selflessness where if you were selfish, <laughs> you would stop. So somebody maybe who's made say 50 million or 100 million, if they were selfish, they would stop, right? But they keep going, they keep going. And and the doctor says, you're going to give yourself a heart attack. Your wife's going to leave you, your husband's going to leave you, you know, your kids won't talk to you. And and yet they're driven. And this drive, this constant drive is actually not selfish. It's it's weirdly, perversely selfless. (laughs) It's the person, and you see it obviously in all sorts of human behavior where a person continues to go out with someone who's bad for them. They continue to, and it's kind of selflessness, i.e. if they were selfish, they'd stop going out with the person who's going to mistreat them, but they keep being drawn to this destructive, and that's drive. And uh, you see it within our society that weirdly, we can sometimes get so attached to some pursuit that it is that it damages us, it destroys us. And weirdly, people think, oh, they're just being selfish because they're pursuing it. Mm-hmm. But no, 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 they're they're caught up in a drive that they know is bad. Like the person knows they're going to have a heart attack. They mm-hmm. know that they're estranged from their family. They know that they've stood over their friends and destroyed their friendships in order to get more, more, more. And you go, why are you doing it? It's like, I just can't stop. Uh, the image I have in my head right now is like someone driving towards the edge of a cliff. And like they know they should hit the brakes, and there's just something that just says, "Pump it, silly mate, go for it." Yes, that's drive. Is that yeah, the that's drive? drive. Yeah. yeah, that's drive. Yeah, and vert- and vertigo is that's kind of a version of vertigo. And Kierkegaard talked about that. It's like when you look over a cliff, and there's a part of you that's just like jump, yeah. a, and it's almost like a fear. Like you're, you, you have to pull yourself back because there's this weird part of us. And this is why I'm not a utilitarian, by the way. Is that that? And this is why I'm not. I don't believe in um, ev- uh, evolutionary psychology and other forms of theory that come out of that is purely because in utilitarianism and evolutionary psychology, not evolution, but evolutionary psychology, there's a notion that we always act towards maximizing our pleasure and minimizing our pain, Mm. that human beings, and and if we don't, it's because of a, a malfunction. It's because we, you know, for example, you pick a poison berry. It's not because you want a poison berry. You thought it was not poison. But, the whole point of psychoanalysis is this, and it's a very hard idea to get your head around at first, but is that actually as human beings, we often don't want our best self-interest. We often do want to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. Sometimes we want to suffer. We choose to suffer. We put ourselves in situations where we suffer. And mm-hmm. that's a very strange thing. Yeah, you know, that's, that, you don't see that in other animals. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, in fact, for example, when animals build shelter, they build a shelter and then they stop when it's built. Or when they mate, they mate. Or when they eat, they eat until they're, they're full. Whereas human beings, if we're, we have a drive to shelter, we never just have one house and it's enough. Mm-hmm. Then we have to add on to it, buy a second house, a third yeah, yeah, house, yeah. right? You know, yeah. it's like... Get a sunroom in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, there's this weird insatiable dimension to being yeah. human. That, that, and that's what I mean by coming back to the tyranny of happiness is that a lot of my work is about how do we create a space in which we're freed from that that drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the drive completely, because it's the drive that also gets things done. Sure. It's almost like, it's, it's where you, almost all you have to do is change your perception and go, 
oh, it's the struggle itself that's enjoyable. So for uh, Albert Camus, he talked about there's the conservative person and the conservative often looks back to the past and they want to conserve something and they see something good in the past they want to get back to. And he says the revolutionary is the one who looks to the future. They see something in the future that is good and they'll only be satisfied when they get that. Mm. So the, the conservative will only be satisfied if they get back to the golden age. The yeah. revolutionary will only be satisfied if they get to the, cool. the new age. We just talked about this a couple of weeks ago and the, the, it was the exact same setup, only it was prophets and wizards. Oh, and I, the prophet I, always wants to go backwards and bring back the old days and then we will be restored. And the wizards looking ahead to innovation saying, but if we just innovate enough, then we'll be restored stored oh, and it's like good. that's the tension, oh, that's the tension. Yeah. and so I, i'd like to hear what what if there was a third in your one because for camus then he talks about the rebel and he says the rebel is the one who enjoys the dissatisfaction so uh, whereas the book conservative and the revolutionary they both kind of aren't enjoying their struggle because they're looking to something else the rebel is like they're they're fighting for something better but they're enjoying the struggle itself very interesting yeah. So. There was no third. Oh, there was no third. Ah, right. Okay. But, but the rebel yeah. is like you know, it's it's the it's the difference between we're not sports guys as we've made clear. Uh, it's the difference between an athlete who you know plays basketball or lifts weights or whatever as a means to an end versus the psychos that just like love to go and 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 suffer. <laughs> Do yes, you know what I mean? Right. I don't, and yeah. They actually really, really, really enjoy the process. Yes. And they're they're the ones that end up being, you know, the greatest ever. Absolutely. And you know, I was just reading about this. I was reading one of my a philosopher I really like. I don't really agree with a lot of what he says, but he's brilliant. But philosopher Feuerbach. And Feuerbach was a very key philosopher in um uh in kind of um like looking at the idea of projection, of looking at the idea of how our gods look like ourselves and how we project ourselves into our gods. He's a very interesting writer. But um, he talked about, you know, to be human is, he kind of talked about it in relation with the word infinite, but he says like, if you, he talked about knowledge, love, and will, right? So in knowledge, he says, you can try to know something because it's useful, Right. You want to know how the cameras work so you can do this podcast. You want to know how the mic works because you want to do this better. Right. And that's great. But he says the true height of knowledge is when you just want to know for the sake of it. Whenever you just want knowledge for knowledge's sake. Same thing with love is maybe you can love somebody because of how they look and how they laugh and how they carry themselves. But love is at its height when love has no conditions. It's love of love itself. And the same as will Will means like self-determination. You can will to do this thing or that thing. But the highest form of will is just that you want to be to self-determine. Not, not, so you turn knowledge and love and will into things in themselves. Mm. When you can do that, then you're able to, I think, kind of, that there, is a, there is a beauty and a power to that. I love, I, last year I went on a real dopamine kick, as in looking into it. We always are on a dopamine kick, I suppose, these days. So in other words, you were taking heroin? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the nice I, way of saying it? I yeah, was I, chasing the dragon. <laughs> I, had, I had a heroin addiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I had a really good six months I told you about, and then it was followed by, uh, you know. And it's interesting, like, even you obviously are coming to things from, like, a philosophical, even from, like, a biological or maybe biochemical is a better way to put it. Uh there was a study done on runners and there was three groups in the study. The first group, they just went for a run, right? The second group, they were given a reward at the end of their run. 
and the third group they were given a reward before their run. Okay. Okay. Now, in the group that got the reward first, I think what well, I think is going to happen. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Owner, Okay. Yeah. Uh, they got all the dopamine up front, and they hated the run because there was no incentive. The second group, who got the reward at the end, didn't get any dopamine during the run, and they got it all at the end. And the first group that just went for a run, they got a steady wee drip, 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 drip of doping the whole way through. That's great. You know, that's very good because I'm caught, I'm lost in flow. I love philosophy or whatever. And I love whenever sometimes philosophy and biochemistry mm-hmm. meet. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant because that's a beautiful, very practical example mm-hmm. of, of this is that if you're running for an aim, even if it's – and I'm, I don't know – I don't know if you, you were a runner anyway, but um, I've got a few friends here. Runners have to ask them. But I can imagine that at first you might run – for your health, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I'm getting, you know, and, and I've been doing that a little bit and I hate it, but I'm because I'm doing it for the end, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a certain point when you just do the running for the love of running. Yeah. And it's at that point that you're going to actually do well. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that that point where you're going to be able to run? And I've never got to that point. <laughs> so I'll just admit, when I go to the gym, I have never yet got to the point where I'm like, I'm just doing this in the end of itself. I'm mm-hmm. doing it for the reward. And the reward is like, maybe be a little bit healthier. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and yeah. that's what I'm missing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love dopamine. I think dopamine is really, really interesting because I think it's, it's the most important chemical, I would say, in the modern world. Like dopamine's obviously as old as time is. But I think we live in a dopamine economy now where, you know, attention and profit and influence is really wrapped up in who can deliver dopamine the fastest and in the, Mm -hmm. you know, in the swiftest vehicle as such. And I think, I I know I've just read Postman, you know, amusing ourselves to death. You know, he talks about how everything has become entertainment from religion to politics to everything. And it's, you know, he wrote that book and I think it was 84, maybe around then. And uh, I think it's great you're reading it. Like whenever people say to me today, and maybe it's because I've lived in America too long, but people say, I was just reading a book and I thought you were going to say this, read a book. And then they say some book that's crap. (laughs) Just come out. It's on the New York Times bestsellers, but it's like, it's instantly going to be forgettable. And I just expect that. And as soon as you said, I was like, oh, that's a classic. You know, it's great. Like it's so much better. And I recommend to anybody is read classic works mm. like works like amusing yourselves to death ourselves to death is like because there's so many books come out that are flashes in the pan and they're also building on these people and they're so anyway it was really good whenever you said i've just been in la too long i thought you were going to say some <laughs> rubbish because like i was so I'm, I'm back home i'm home people are reading good things this is wonderful yeah That's awesome <laughs> and I, you know I, anyway oh, yeah. to cut it all kind of short is Inside the dopamine system, I think you find a lot of philosophical, interesting things. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I find really interesting, you mentioned it at the, at the start of the conversation, was you didn't exactly say this, but this is the way I interpret it was, you know, what goes up must come down. Yeah. And in order to experience pleasure, you have to experience pain. And that's actually baked into our brain. Yeah. You know, yeah. Are, are you familiar with, uh, I'll send you all of her stuff afterwards, if you're not, a woman called Anna Lemke. Don't think so, oh, man. You will love her. She makes neuroscience really accessible. Uh, I think she's Stanford. She talks about a dopamine seesaw. And the way it works is there's a pleasure side and there's a pain side. She talks about these little monkeys in your brain. Uh, and basically, whenever your brain experiences a lot of pleasure, these monkeys will jump as hard as they can on the pain side to try to bring you back to a place of balance. Uh, yeah. And, 
you know, you see it with rock stars, you see it with 14-year-olds on TikTok, and you see it with 27-year-old podcasters called Matthew. We have this thing where it's like we constantly want to keep the pleasure high, 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 and we don't allow space for uh, for the down to come. Yes. And you need the down. Yes. You need the down yeah. because actually it's good for you, and it it's the only way you can find enjoyment as well. Yes, yes. And then there's, uh, and this is really interesting, and again, it's it's not something we often see, but I think we can understand that when we hear it, is that crazily we can sometimes be addicted to the suffering in a, in a weird way that, like, sometimes a gambler isn't addicted to winning, they're addicted to losing. So true. It's the loss that's kind of like, because if they won all the time, they'd get bored, like they'd get money, but mm-hmm. get bored. Is a, it's, the, it's the loss that generates this yeah. enjoyment. And, and again, just to interrupt really quick, uh, from a dopamine perspective, the dopamine hit is higher when they lose, uh, and the dopamine hit is higher in direct proportion to how much they lose. Uh, Isn't that mad? That's, yeah. See, this is interesting because th- there are a few thinkers who work on the borderline between kind of uh, neuroscience, neurobiology, and philosophy. There's a few. There's um, Catherine Malibu. There's one. But there's not, as m- there's not too many. Mm-hmm. And so when, I'm loving talking to you because I'm saying certain things and then you're going, oh, yeah, from, from, from this biological perspective, this fits. And it's really lovely to see those connections because otherwise... I'm an absolute amateur. Like, I, by no means am I a neuroscience guy, but like I, it was my interest last year. Oh, yeah. Well, no, it's great because uh, there's, there's definitely interesting connections there. And often the two never they never meet. But, but these philosophical ideas have to have biological dimensions to them, 100%. And it's, it's a very, you see it in us as human beings is that we can sometimes find ourselves addicted to these cycles that are destructive, that are, and as you say, you're actually getting it. There's a dopamine hit mm-hmm. in this, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. So for you personally, where does the rubber meet the road when it comes to ideas for ideas sake and ideas that actually become tools that enable people or equip people to live i don't want to say happier lives that would Mm. i would be against everything that you've just said but um lives where they can find more peace more greater purpose a higher sense of meaning greater impact whatever it is that people are actually looking for yeah, well, so like a lot of my work, and I'll give you the most controversial dimension of it now, and I'm going to do what I shouldn't do, which is give you an answer without showing my working out. So you always have to show your working out in <laughs> philosophy. The working out is more important than the answer, but I will jump to, you know, I'll give a little bit of working out, but jump to the the core, um, is that I would argue that to be human is to be uh in, um, in, I would call it ambivalence. Right? To be human is to experience, as we've talked about, loss and suffering and sacrifice. It's part of being human. And what we do is we often think that the, what we have to do is overcome that. So we often go into things in order to overcome the contradictions that inhabit us. Uh, the name for a contradiction in our body and analysis is the symptom. A symptom is something in your body that coagulates a contradiction. So, for example, you might grind your teeth at night and you're grinding your teeth and there doesn't seem to be a biological reason for it. But then you talk to an analyst and you realize that you want to say something to your partner, but you also were scared that if you said it, they would leave you. So you want to speak and you want to stay silent. 
And so the symptom is a coagulation of the contradiction, right? Mm. And the, the analyst helps you see that. And weirdly, as you talk about it, you stop grinding your teeth, right? Um, you shall know the truth. The truth will set you free. That weirdly, through knowing something, it dissipates. Oh, one of my favorite books ever. I don't know if you read it. I don't know if you like it. Is Awareness by Anthony DeMello. Oh, yes. Oh, I love Anthony DeMello. That's hilarious. That's another great... I mean, because I, um, I got into storytelling many years ago... Um, and, you know, because the best way to illustrate complex ideas is with a good story. And mm. Anthony DeMello was probably one of the greatest influences on me. Oh, wow. Yeah, because cool. yeah, he wrote the Song of the Bird, if you've got, which is a beautiful book of collated parables wow. from all around the world. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's cute. Song of the Bird. Song of the Bird. Song oh, that's of beautiful. the Bird. Yeah. yeah. Cool. There's my Christmas book. <laughs> Very good. Uh, but yeah, his, his big thing was, you know, like awareness will set you free. Oh. As soon as you become aware of something, you don't have to change it. You don't have to force it. Yes. Just become aware and the thing will just yes. do its thing. <laughs> you know what yes. I mean? And it's, it's the opposite of self-help because self-help often is like how to get from A to B and what you do. But yeah. this is the technical term for it is grace because grace is where you realize you don't have to do anything. But weirdly, in realizing you don't have to do anything, you begin to change. So the awareness an acceptance, this radical acceptance, this radical experience of grace is precisely what allows you to change. And it is very bizarre because it, it's this idea that, that again, like you're saying, it's not that you force yourself, force yourself, force yourself, is you stop, you have you experience radical acceptance and then you start to become a better person precisely when you lay down. Mm -hmm. Now, this is called dialectics in philosophy. It's interesting, which is dialectics is, Whenever you're confronted with two options, we often go for the best option, of course. <laughs> um, if, you're, if you're presented with uh, darkness and light, you go for light, happiness or sadness, happiness, life or death, life, right? Um, or we try to find some middle ground. Dialectics is a choice for the worst. Dialectics is if you're, um, if you're presented with life and death, you choose death. If you're presented with light and darkness, you go into the darkness, happiness, sadness, sadness. But the point is, in embracing death, you find life. In going into the darkness, you find the light. Mm -hmm. In looking at the, your depression, it dissipates. So it, it, that's why in analysis, they don't kind of give you positive affirmations or whatever. You go into the darkest. So in analysis, you might go, listen, it's like there's a big trap door beside me with all these monsters and ghosts and goblins. Can you help me shut the trap door? And the analyst pushes you in. Yeah, like, yeah, they yeah, push yeah, you yeah. in. But they're do not doing that because they're a sadist. They're doing that because they know that when you go into the darkness, you find life. When you go the, the, into death, you find life, right? Interesting. So, you still have a quote. Oh, yes, it's there. Oh, what is it? Uh, it says, now I have cameras. I will try to show it. It says, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. There you go. Yes. That's it. That's it. So in the example I was giving you, say, of the, the, the symptom, the symptom is a coagulation of a contradiction. What we do as human beings is we're constantly trying to overcome our contradictions. But the philosophy of Hegel, who's my favorite thinker, his, his philosophy, he says that actually life is about going deeper and deeper into contradictions. So at first you don't want to shout at your partner you, but you want to say something, right? But then you realize, oh, but that also replicates a relationship I had with my siblings, <laughs> right? Or with my mother or with my father. And then you kind of go, oh, well, actually, there's something about 
language itself is about that. You can you can never say what you really want to say. There's there's something about being human in which miscommunication is as important as communication. Mm-hmm. And what happens in analysis is the cure is not when you've got rid of all your contradictions, but when you write right down to the core of yourself and you realize that you are a contradiction, that you have love and hate, that you ha- you fear to go out and you want to go out. You want to be alone, but you want to be with someone. And as you embrace the contradiction that you are, you actually find freedom. And for me as a philosopher, I'm interested, and this is the the radical part, (laughs) is that this contradiction isn't just in us, it's in everything. Um, In mathematics, it's called Gödel's incompleteness theorem. In physics, it's called indeterminacy. In politics, it's called democracy, the (laughs) non-at-oneness of the political body with itself. In biology, it's called evolution, the non-at-oneness of the biological organism with itself. Mm -hmm. That there's something about all of reality is castrated or is divided. Now, this is really key because if, and so I believe we live in an age which I will call, and it's been called by others, by Todd McGowan's got a great book on this, called The Age of the Demand to Enjoy, The God of the Demand to Enjoy. And what that is, is the religion of today is the demand to enjoy, that everyone's enjoying, you can be uncastrated. It's this super egoic injunction to enjoy and have and have. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we get free from that? The problem is in a society like that, the only way is usually to go backwards, which is to to embrace uh, often a kind of fascistic thing, which is give me rules, give me boundaries, right? But you can't go back because even when you go back, it's framed in the God of the demand to enjoy. So, for example, a conservative religious preacher might say, don't have sex before marriage. So in in a very promiscuous society where sex becomes unsexual, they bring in a prohibition, you know, sex within certain constraints. But then they can't help but say, because that's the best way to have sex. That's the most enjoyment, right? So <laughs> it's, it's, a wee, it's a wee bit on the wee bit yeah, put on top, isn't it? So it's a wee bit, and, and, and in a way, there's a kind of right, because because there's always a prohibition generates desire, right? But But there's a more radical move, which is the other direction. And this is the direction where you realize that everyone is divided. All of reality is that there is nothing that is complete. Everything has asymmetry, conflict within it. And so even though some people have much worse lives and some much better lives, to be human is to experience contradiction. And the funny thing is, for me, is the most radical reading of religion is the idea of, of that even God is divided, <laughs> that even, which is just, which is a way of saying even the absolute is not at one with itself, that there is a kind of contradiction within, within the absolute itself. And when you experience that, um, I think you experience a freedom from this horrible, uh, super egoic demand, the serpentine demand to be like God, to be made mm-hmm. one, to be made whole. And you can start to enjoy dissatisfaction. Well, I think even in like hardcore conservative preacher theology, mm. like there's the Trinity. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? It's like it's like what? Like yes. I, don't know, I mean, mine's far greater than than anyone have uh, grappling with that for thousands of years. Yeah, you know I mean? the Trinity is a perfect example. So in philosophy, there's an idea that so there's some people who say the universe is one, and what that means is there. So there, you know, so the universe really is. There is no difference. There is no otherness. It's in a veil of illusions. Everything is one. Everything's complete. Then there's the view that the universe is uh, dual. The universe is full of, like, you can't have up without down. You can't have left without right. You can't have yin without yang. There's a there's a type of dualism within the universe. And then there's multiplicity. The universe is made up of discrete things, lots of different things. 
Dialectics is this notion that the universe is not one. Now, this sounds weird philosophy. Hopefully your listeners will keep keep going here. <laughs> but this is the idea that that something is not itself and that those two things are separated by a third. That's Trinitarianism. So it's so something is not one and is not two and it's not three. And basically what that means is you are not yourself. And, I, and whenever I talked about Jean-Paul Sartre earlier, who said that to be human is to to not be human, to kind of to be yourself is in a way to to be also other. That's kind of like a Trinitarian notion is that there's something about the universe that's, that's asymmetrical. And of course, the biggest move in religion is in Christianity, you have this notion where God says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a novel idea in religion, which is the idea of God experiencing a lack within God. Mm. Um, and that's why some thinkers like Slavio Shizek and Todd McGowan, a guy called Richard Bruthmead, not, not theists at all, not religious people at all, but find within that image something incredibly radical, like a radical insight into the nature of reality yeah. that, we, that we see within certain modern sciences today. You ever heard of wabi-sabi? Wow, it sounds like something you put on sushi. It does. Yeah. It? I don't even know what you call that now. Wasabi sauce? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So not wasabi. No. So wabi-sabi, who did I, who am I stealing this from? I think I'm stealing this from Seth Godin, who I love dearly. Uh, he talks about how in... Our society today, there is a real uh, gravitational pull towards the imperfect. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in the content world, you talk about like Gen Z, they want authenticity. Mm -hmm. So things that blow up on TikTok are usually like pearly uh, filmed Uh, on the street encounter with strangers. Yes. Because it's so imperfect. And so so if you think about Ikea, these glasses are probably from Ikea, okay? there's probably, I don't know, is there half a million glasses like this, exactly like this one in the world that have been made in a factory? Yeah. And wabi-sabi is a Japanese principle. I've heard of this principle. Where people, and if, this you're, is, yeah. if you're a potter. Slight imperfection. Slight imperfection. Yes. And so that's one point. The second thing that I, I wanted to kind of react to what you said was, I remember reading something recently that said in ancient storytelling, and fables and, and parables and things like that, there was an extraordinary amount of paradox. Mm, yeah, and yeah. there is no paradox in modern storytelling yeah. because it's just everything gets tied up within a wee bow. You know, yes, there's yes. perfect resolution. Yes. Everything ends well. And the reality is that life is full of paradoxes. It's full of contradictions. It's full of things that never get resolved. And so... Yeah, that's yeah, just what no, I reacted to. Hundred percent. Like, there's a terrible form of writing, and you see it a lot in the modern world now in modern movies, where it, the kind of like characters are say good and evil, right and wrong, and they, and they're split into this. Whereas you said like the best myths and Levi Strauss very good on us, but the best myths exactly what you said are full of what he calls twists and double twists. The double twist is where it kind of contradictions. So the goody are they really good or are they bad? Mm. And the body, actually, are they good? And like any any great movie, any great book, you will have these twists and these contradictions and these paradoxes. But when you create a story or mythology, which is what like what children read, absolute goodies, absolute baddies, all of that, like they're, it's like eating popcorn. I mean, it's nice. It's instantly forgettable. Um, the best stories are the stories in which the characters are multiple divided mm. um, and 
we're up is down, down is up. And yes, that's that's what I see, especially in Hollywood, where they want the popcorn, they want the immediate hit. Yeah, of course. But we're not seeing that great paradoxical storytelling because we are paradoxes. We are walking contradictions. Uh, Lanka Sapanchik, she said that we are the ticks and grimaces of the universe. Like we are, and it, it sounds crazy to say, but it's like if you if you say that there's something in the universe that is not at one with itself, there's this, there's this, contradiction at work that contradiction eventually erupts into being and that being eventually erupts into life and that life into consciousness consciousness of self-consciousness self-consciousness into reason we arise we arise as a type of expression of the quantum indeterminacy of the universe and how does it express itself in our minds exactly in the sense that we want to speak and stay silent we want to love and hate oh yeah we we want to be with people and not like that we are weirdly contrary and, and soren kierkegaard great philosopher he he said that that is our freedom that's anxiety by the way the name for our freedom is anxiety anxiety is the sense of i don't know what i should do or who i should be or what i want mm-hmm. this anxiety but kierkegaard says instead of trying to get rid of anxiety which is what society wants to do it's like your anxiety is your freedom your anxiety shows you that you are free that you are a human and somehow we have to find ways to to embrace our anxiety and again the dialectically when you embrace your anxiety your anxiety is no longer a suffering mm. the weight is dissipated the, the yoke is, is has no weight lem key that neuroscientist told you about she her kind of belief is that and this is again quite philosophical language so she's definitely borrowing that the pursuit of pleasure is the pursuit of pain uh, yeah. on a neurological level like mm. the more you pursue dopamine the less you're going to get and in her kind of seesaw metaphor her whole book it's called um dopamine nation and the kind of call to action of the book is push down harder on the pain side yourself because the opposite is true if you push down on the pain side, the monkeys hop on the pleasure side yeah. and give you pleasure. And that's why if you do something like, you know, you jump in the sea or you go on a sauna or you go for a run that you hate and it's really, really difficult and it's really hard or you finish a PhD, yeah. at the end of it, you get that like, whoa. Yeah. Because it's the it's the topsy-turvy world of the pursuit of pleasure is the, is the pursuit of pain. Yeah. And now, and you can definitely take this too far, but the pursuit of pain is actually, it, it gives you pleasure. Yeah. And in, in yeah, in, in, uh, in psychoanalysis, they talk about the term, they use the term jouissance as the technical term for a pleasurable suffering. It's this weird suffering that, that, that is somehow enjoyable that you see whenever someone drives past an accident and you're, you look, but you can't look. Mm. You know, there's something that you enjoy and are also repulsed by. Absolutely. But I'll give you, give you one example of, of this from a philosophical perspective, but very practical, actually, is a friend of mine, he was having trouble in his relationship and he was saying, listen, he says, I'm always in trouble with my wife, always in trouble. You know, she's always blaming me for something. And it was really getting to him and it was damaging the relationship. And sometimes he deserved it, sometimes he didn't. <laughs> um, but what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but as I was talking to him, I was like, well, listen, so I said to him, you know, you... um." Because I know him quite well, I go like you. You enjoy the pursuit. You enjoy winning someone over, right? In both in romantic relationships and also in work. So his desire is very much caught up in 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 winning something over. Mm-hmm. And I said, knowing his partner, I was like, and she loves being wooed and won over. Mm-hmm. Like her desire is is caught up in the enjoyment. I said, what's potentially happening is you're both getting your enjoyment, right? You she she wants to make you 
feel bad so that you win her over, right? So you're both operating with this desire, but yeah, yeah, yeah. you're not enjoying your enjoyment because you're not aware of it. So when I talked to him about it and we chatted, suddenly just the awareness changed it entirely. He realized that his wife wasn't always making him feel bad because she thought he was awful. But it was because giving him an opportunity to woo. Woo, which which both of them enjoy and both of them like. Yeah. And so once you suddenly saw that that your desire is operating, then you don't have to change anything. He just became aware of the structure and immediately started to feel more comfortable in that structure. So basically, if you don't find a healthy way to let struggle, right, which is struggle, you know, he's in the doghouse, he wins her over, like that struggle, if you don't find a healthy way for that struggle to operate in your marriage or your life, it'll find an unhealthy way to do it. And what they were doing is it was, it was finding an unhealthy way to come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So often it's all about how do I find a healthy way to struggle, healthy way to sacrifice, a healthy way to not get what I want. Because if I don't find a healthy way, oh, it's going to come out in probably an unhealthy way. Interesting. I'll give you a really uh, sitcom-y, popcorn-y example of that. I think it's in like the first or second season of Scrubs. I was raised on Scrubs. I love Scrubs. I, I rewatched the whole thing oh, yeah? recently. Oh, yeah. I love okay, that so, show. Okay, so yeah. there's an episode where like- I'll J- remember it. Tell yeah, me. <laughs> where JD realizes that he's fighting with Elliot, uh, the two main characters of the love interest, um, because he, he, he loves makeup sex. there you go and he he realizes like oh my goodness this is what I've been doing this whole time he's like why am I acting like such a jerk and it's because he loves the redemption arc you know and he loves that passionate like come back together and as soon as he's aware of it you know I think he ends up stopping like oh see that's that's a perfect example and I love the fact he was a scrubs example (laughs) because I love that show I literally rewatched it recently because oh so good so so good there are um, like 20 things uh, some of them are written down some of them are not like reactions things that I'd love to cover that I'm just not going to get to I would have loved to have got more into Irish mammies would have loved to have got into this idea of the golden girl um, you know how like wars have been fought over like Cleopatra and objects oh, yeah. of desires and how all this sort of stuff I really want to talk about King Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes oh, after yeah. a bunch of stuff that you said but um, I think it's always better to save some of those sweet things for a part two sometimes absolutely so land in the plane then why did you move home why are you home oh that's interesting you know there wasn't too much um behind it in that uh, i was going to be signing a lease uh for another year where i was living in la and i was like i don't really want to sign for another year here and i mean i love home i'll say it, so i love i love this place and one you know freud he never said this, this is apocryphal but but he should have said it. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes apocryphal things are more true. That's why they exist. So apocryphally, Freud said, the Irish can't be psychoanalyzed. And um, it's go like, what does that mean? You go like, well, one way of interpreting that is if you think of psychoanalysis as a way of helping people come to terms with the darkness, the difficulties of life, right, of, of, and of celebrating them and enjoying them and turning them into something good, was sublimating them, then you could make an argument that there's something about this this place where we have done that, where we enjoy the dark, mm. we enjoy the difficult, we've turned it into art. Some of our greatest artists and musicians have taken the, the deepest sufferings of life and turned it into something beautiful. And so there's something about this. I've always felt that I'm taking a little spirit of, of Northern Ireland, particularly in Belfast, into the world, something that's this beautiful about this place. And it's partly... It's partly that. So coming home for a while and being 
in that space. Bathe in yourself in the darkness. Yes, yeah. It's like, okay, I can like this. You know, because I often analogy I've used in the past is that if you've just say had a breakup, you've got two things you can do, right? You've got to, but like imagine you could either go to a nightclub, say, just go get drunk, you know, talk, talk nonsense to people, um, dance to some pop music, right? Uh, or you could say go to an Irish pub, right? You go to a pub and they both have the same liturgical technology, right? They've both got music, alcohol and people, right? Yeah. But in one... The pop music is all about escaping your suffering and thinking about, you know, money and revenge or whatever. And that's all pop music. You can't have any serious conversations because it's too loud. And you're drinking to get drunk and forget about your problems. But in the Irish pub, a good Irish pub, you go in and you don't drink to get drunk and forget about your problems. You have a drink and you talk about what's going on in your life. Yeah. And the music isn't some music that's helping you get away. It's some sad Irish guy talking about how his one true beloved <laughs> died of consumption and he'll never love again. The you dirge. Know? Yeah, you know, and you realize that what's happening in that place is you, you thought you were going to the pub to get away from the pain. But you're talking about it and you're hearing it put in artistic form and you're talking to your friend going, yeah, it's been really, really tough. And the difference is this, is the nightclub doesn't work, so you have to go back again and again and again and then the pain comes back. But the liturgical technology of the Irish pub is one that where you start to mourn, you start to work through the pain and the difficulty, and you find weirdly that as you do that, as you have artistic expression of it, as you talk to your friends, you become lighter and lighter and there's something about that in Belfast. And I do, a, I do a festival here and a retreat every year and where I bring Americans to Belfast. I bring right. in every May, bring about 100 Americans. And then every October, it's about 60 or 70. And we, I bring them in and so many of them fall for Belfast. And to be honest, well, the weather's not great and sometimes <laughs> it's a bit of a hole and all that. But one of the things they often like is this part of Belfast is they go to the bars they can relax. They can talk about things. They all, people are friendly, especially to foreigners. Maybe not to each other, but we're sure. friendly to, to people. They hear the accent. Excited. Everyone yeah. puts on their best manners. Exactly, yeah. and chat away. And what what you get here is, I think, an expression of we've created. Now, at our worst, we we wallow in it. But at our best, we've created a space where where our art is infused with a love of the sacrifice of the dark. Not so that we despair, but so that we can rise above despair and, and really truly live. Yeah. Again, a really silly poppy example. Um, you ever remember, he was big a few years ago, pop artist called Macklemore. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I liked him. Yeah. yeah, he has a song called Neon Cathedral. And it's uh, basically a comparison of the pub with the church. Um, and so he talks about like this booth being his Vatican and he goes in and the bartender is his priest and all this sort of stuff. Oh, and I just yes. always thought that was very fun. Yeah, because he was very good. At, like I remember now the reason why I liked him is, you know, he in quite ironic, humorous ways was able to embrace the absurdities of, you know, certain things in the music industry and embrace a little bit of the suffering. So, yeah, I remember yeah. that now. Yeah. That's cool. Cool. Uh, what's next? Oh, and, like anything you want to share with the people listening before we wrap up? And see, well, I'm excited about where I'm going. Actually, one thing I'll say about it, I do monthly seminars and I used to do them to people who support me, but 
as of 2023, I'm going to do them all for free on YouTube. Nice. And I'm uh, going to actually going to get a wee live audience in Belfast, do them in Belfast. So I'm excited about that. So in the new year, I'm going to be doing a lot more content online. Um, I'm excited about that. I've got a book that I'm finishing. It will probably take a year before it's out because it takes so long. But, I'm, yeah. but it's a book that I'm, I haven't written for 10 years. I wrote a pile of books ages ago. haven't written in 10 years. So I've got a new book that I'm working on. I'm excited about that. And uh, yeah, just going to, oh, and a do working on a documentary which I'm excited about about Tammy Faye Baker so that's hopefully going to be finished this year so I've got a few things that I'm excited about working on but mostly I'm just happy to be home man it's yeah, great man. and I love this conversation sitting down chatting with you in Belfast like I'm excited to be here I at first I was like will I just do it for six months will I do it for three months will I, will I want to run back to LA yeah, and I'm yeah, like yeah. I love LA but oh man it's it's so nice to be home yeah man well welcome home it's good to have you back thanks man um, thanks it. for coming on this appreciate it appreciate it that's us. Wonderful. That Legend. was great, man. I loved that. Had a blast. Yeah, I loved that. Yeah. It was not the conversation <clears throat> I was planning on having. You successfully evaded. I was going to like just focus on the personal story. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, Oh, I always evade that. Yeah, as, 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 <laughs> soon as, you, as soon as you said, like, ideas, I was just gone. Like, yeah. I was absolutely gone. Um, but I, I really enjoyed where it went. It was awesome. All right, good. Man, I'm, I feel like it's cool what you're doing here. Like, I'm, I say Belfast has changed because... Of the same